Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're also going to look in 2 Kings chapter 2 as well, but 1 Kings 19 first. So our final part of the Elijah series and the part of his life, his narrative, his story that we're covering today is the transition of leadership from Elijah over to Elisha. And we're going to draw some points of implication from that story as to uh, what God wants to say to us about the passing on of the baton, second generations, other generations coming afterwards, and how God manages people's endings. Because Elijah, as much as he was an incredible influencer, and he played his part powerfully in the broader narrative, the broader story of the people of Israel, even his life at some point came to a close. And then there was a move on to the next generation of prophetic voice in the nation. But what we will see as we read through this, that his ending was a good ending. And the irony for those who opposed Elijah, and I'm almost getting into my points before I've begun here really with my, my uh, preamble, is that what we shall see is that Elijah, for, the, for much of the story of his life that we read in the text itself, he was on the run like a stray animal. And the people who opposed him, Ahab and Jezebel, they seemed to be the ones that were in power. They were the ones that held all the cards. They were the ones that could call the shots. But then when we get to the end of the story, things happen for them very, very differently. Elijah's ending and Jezebel's ending are markedly different. So let's read now, first of all, through 1 Kings chapter 19, the verses 19 to 21, and then over into 2 Kings chapter 2. So it says, Elijah left and found Elisha plowing with a team of oxen. There were 11 teams ahead of him, and he was plowing with the last one. There's a, a bit of... Um, an echo of David's story there. So when Samuel goes to look for King David, he gets all of the brothers to come through first, and then David is the one that's left in the field and wasn't even put by his father Jesse in front of the prophet, almost as if he doesn't really have any great significance. Surely you couldn't want him. And I think again here in the text we get this witness to God seeing things at the end of the line, which those who kind of seem to be at the front of the queue actually are the ones that get overlooked. The first will be last and the last will be first. Anyway, I'm giving you too much comment here. So let's verse 20. Elisha then left his oxen and he ran after Elijah. He's very eager. And he said, let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye. When I read this, I assume then he's not married and doesn't have kids. He doesn't say, let me kiss my wife and kids goodbye unless he didn't like them. Maybe he thought, good riddance. I need to move on quickly. So I read into the text here, he was probably a youngish man, had not left his home, his, his parental home, and uh, he's waiting for that moment God calls him. 
Elijah answered, all right, go back. I'm not stopping you. Then Elisha went to his team of oxen, killed them, poor cows, and he cooked the meat using the yoke as a fuel for the fire, and he gave the meat to people and they ate it. They went and fo- sorry, then he went and followed Elijah as his helper. So now we'll turn over to 2 Kings chapter 2. So we finished that part on a little bit of a barbecue. Thanks to those cows, he doesn't need any more, but he's kind of getting some closure on that, on a bri for the South Africans amongst us, yes. He's just getting some closure. He's basically saying, I'm not going back to this. We're done. That season in life is over. I couldn't go back to my cows even if I wanted to because they're now in the bellies of those I was working with. So 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 15, slightly longer, but, but it's a really, really um, striking story. So, well, hang on, I'm not even on 2 Kings chapter 1 here myself. Verse 1, I mean. Sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, The time came for the Lord to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah and Elisha therefore set out from Gilgal on the way. Elijah then said to Elisha, Now stay here. The Lord has ordered me to go to Bethel. But Elisha said, I swear um, by my loyalty to the living Lord that you and I will, sorry, that I will not leave you. So they went on to Bethel. A group of prophets who lived there went to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take away your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha answered, but let's not talk about it. He's in denial, but there we go. Then Elijah said to Elisha, Now stay here. The Lord ordered me to go to Jericho. But Elisha answered, I swear by loyalty to the living Lord that you and I will, sorry, that I will not leave you. So they went on to Jericho. And a group of prophets who lived there went to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? He's getting it in stereo now. Different prophets in different places. The word is consistently coming through to him. Yes, I can imagine exasperation in his voice. Yes, I know, Elisha answered, but let's not talk about it. Let me bury my head in the sand, pretend it's not happening, or stick my fingers in my ears and go la, 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 and not imagine the worst. I'm happy in my denial. Be quiet. That's my paraphrase. Verse 6, Then Elijah said to Elisha, Now stay here. The Lord has ordered me to go to the river Jordan. But Elisha answered, I swear by my loyalty to the living Lord and to you that I will not leave you. So they went on, and 50 of the prophets followed them to the Jordan. Elijah and Elisha stopped by the river, and the 50 prophets stood at a short distance away. Then Elijah took off his cloak. He rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided, and he and Elisha crossed on to the other side on dry ground. Again, God likes to work in patterns. We haven't finished with the text here. I just can't resist adding comments to the text. There's my little bit of exposition for added benefit. Um, so God, the River Jordan, where's the River Jordan significant? The people of Israel going into the promised land. And what happened was that God enabled them to go through on dry land and get over to the other side. We also have a dry land parallel in the story of Moses when people were coming out of Egypt. It's God's consistent show of power to those who he calls. So again, it divides, and it's going to happen again in a little, uh, few verses' time. Verse 9, there Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what you want me to do for you before I am taken away. 
So Elisha, not missing an opportunity, says, let me receive the share of your power that will make me your successor, Elisha answered. And some versions are double portion. That is a difficult request to grant, Elijah replied. But you will receive it if you see me as I am being taken away from you. If you don't see me, you won't receive it. A bit of jeopardy there. What's going to happen? Which way is, which way is it going to go? Uh, they kept talking and they walked on. Then suddenly a chariot of fire pulled, um, pulled by horses came between them and Elijah was taken. Um, can somebody in my bag here, just in that zip there, there are some batteries. I've got a feeling this is going to go disappear on me. Just in that pack. Just happen to hand, just in case. Thanks, I appreciate that. I'll go from verse 11 again. They kept talking as they walked on, then suddenly a chariot of fire pulled horses of fire, and they came between them. And Elijah was taken up to heaven by a whirlwind. Elisha saw it and cried out to Elijah, My father, my father, mighty defender of Israel, you were gone. And he never saw Elijah again. And in grief, Elisha tore his cloak in two. Then he picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen upon him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Now he struck the water with Elijah's cloak and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Then he struck the water again and it divided. And he too walked over on the other side. So he had to be a little bit more tenacious with that anointing. Elijah did it in one, but Elisha just... Learning to lean into the anointing it took him a couple of goes. So then 50 prophets from Jericho saw him and said, The power of Elijah is now on Elisha. They went to meet him, bowed down before him and said, There are 50 of us here, all strong men. Let us go and look for your master. Maybe the Spirit of the Lord has carried him away and left him on some mountain or in some valley. No, you must go, Elisha answered. But they insisted until he gave in and let them go. The 50 of them went and looked on, a for high, uh, on high and low for Elijah for three days, but they did not find him. Then they returned to Elisha, who had waited in Jericho, and they said to him, sorry, he said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? So this is the handover, this is the transition, this is the change, this is the pivot in the story of Israel from one leader to another. So what can we take from this? Okay, the first thing I would offer to us that we can take from this, and I hinted to that at the beginning when I gave you my kind of introduction, is that we see how God is always in control of how things end. Even when at times for those who are in the middle of something, it feels like God is not in control. There were times in Elijah's life when he would reflect on his circumstances and fear for his own life. Jezebel was after him. She's the wife of the king, King Ahab. She's put a, a kind of a, a death warrant on the life of Elijah. Elijah, this man of God who had faced down prophets of Baal and seen God come through from him, he then goes off and runs for his life. He's fed at the brook of Kidron and he, he kind of goes on this own journey of self-reflection trying to figure out was God really with him or not. And I would imagine if I was to try and put myself in the mind of Elijah in his self-reflection and kind of melancholy, depressed mood, he might have felt like, God, what are you doing? Where are you in all of this? 
Aren't I the man of God? Aren't I the person who has decreed so many things and seen them take place? But right now I'm down in the dumps and I'm out of favour with everybody and people want me dead. And it might feel for him in the middle of his story as if God is not in control. And I think for many of us, I've faced moments even in the last couple of weeks where I've asked myself that question, God, what are you really doing? What's going on? The Bible tells me that you're in control, you're sovereign, you're all-powerful, you have jurisdiction over everything and everyone. But in the presence of my own circumstances, you can look and reflect on those, and it doesn't seem to mirror the authority of God in the circumstances that you're going through. So you can go from the beginning of your call with God with great expectations, and then you get into the middle and you question yourself at times whether God is really in control... But the sign for Elijah and for all of those who knew of his story that God was always in control was not by reflecting on the middle part of Elijah's story, but seeing how it ended. God showed all the time that he was fully in control by determining how he wrapped up the story at the end. Ahab and Jezebel, who were on the throne of Israel, the northern part of Israel at that time, they wanted Elijah dead. Jezebel had said that she wanted him dead. She had brought a curse upon herself, actually, and said that, you know, that she would be in great trouble if she didn't see to it that he died. And at the end, we get this strange irony, but in a positive way, that Jezebel is going to be chased uh, down by a guy called Yehu, who is commissioned as a result of Elijah going up to heaven by Elisha, and he comes to the Sumerian capital and he challenges Jezebel and she's thrown down from a high place in the palace and dies on the floor. And then we get those gruesome details that the Bible likes to interject every now and then. It says that then dogs came and licked up a, what was left of her body. Pretty disgusting. But nevertheless, the Bible just wants to say that eventually... Those who oppose God will get their comeuppance. But Elijah, the man who had been on the run from this woman, how does his story end? He gets carried off in a chariot. He gets the royal heavenly VIP treatment. The guy doesn't even have to taste death. He gets ushered up to heaven on this heavenly horseback ride. So you get this interesting contrast those who oppose God and oppose God's people who seem to be in power and in control and have everything their way in the middle of the story. But then God shows that he was always in control because he gets to determine how the story ends. And it kind of works like that when you're reading a book. It's coming up to Christmas time. Some of you may receive books and some of you may give books. But what the thing is for the author, what the, the bonus is for the author, the author gets to determine what happens in the last chapter. As you're reading page after page after page after page, wondering how this story is going to work itself out, gripped by some John Grisham uh, uh, novel or, or something else. I can't think of any other secular authors because I spend so much time in the Word of God. I don't know any other names of secular authors. My sister will be able to help. This is my sister there. I want to say hello to my sister. I'm joking. Look at her. A little bit of teeth. She's very well read, very well read. 
And you're gripped by the story, what's going to go on? Is the spy going to get found out? Is this army going to get defeated? And you go through all the stories, ups and downs, and it's roller coaster ride and twists and turns. But all the time, the one who has authored the story has already determined what is going to be on the last page of the last chapter and how it will all end. The characters in the story were never in charge. The author was in charge because he wrote the story. And there are moments in time when we see God step into the story and remind people that all along, whatever they're going through, however it's going, whether it's a twist or a turn, an up and a down, never forget that the author of the story determines the ending. And that shows that he is fully present and fully in control. That doesn't stop us questioning at times God's involvement. If this great guy Elijah can go through a down-in-the-dumps moment, a season of melancholy, a time of frustration and self-reflection, and wondering where God was in it all, and God had to keep repeatedly meeting with him. I mentioned when I, I did a, a session a couple of weeks ago how the angel of the Lord a second time came to him and helped him. He has to come back again. And then there are other moments in his life when God speaks to him. It's, God's not worried about reminding us, but even Elijah's get moments when they're frustrated and don't know how it's going to work out. But then they get to be a picture and a story to us of how God is ultimately in charge of how things finish. That's the stamp of the authority of an author. They get to determine how things work out. And so for the reader of this narrative in ancient Israel, as they were first coming, those who of course, lived in the story immediately, but those secondarily who read these stories as they were recorded on scrolls and so forth and would have been recorded and recalled in the narrative of Israel later on, they would have had to make the decision, whose side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on the side of those people who seem to be in power now and have things their way and on their terms and do things with influence and money and wealth and position? Or do you want to be on the side of the lowly prophets who question themselves at times, who feel fearful, who feel scared, who feel frustrated, who seem to be on the run, who seem to be down when everybody else is up, who seem to be under when everybody else is on top. And if you knew the whole story, you would say, well, actually, I want to side with the good guys. Even though for a while it may seem like their life isn't good, I know how their stories end. And I would rather go and be with an Elijah in a chariot than with Jezebel being eaten by dogs. Now, not everybody's life ends that way, and there are a lot of really bad people who don't seem to have quite such tragic ends. And there are a lot of really good people who don't seem to have such victorious ends. But we also know from reading later on in the Bible, history story is still not yet finished. This was one moment in time, one season in history, where we get a picture of where God is in everybody's story. But when we open out Scripture as a whole... We get to see, that even when the bad guys don't seem to meet a terrible end and the good guys don't seem to get a good end, that God hasn't finished ultimately with the story yet. But he has at times shown what he is capable of and how he works. So the second point I would take from this is that that helps remind us that ultimately all of our stories are actually subject to God's bigger story and that has a great deal of effect for us in terms of our personal well-being because we have to remind ourselves that everything that's going on isn't ultimately about us 
we have this very Western mindset at times that, you know, God is, trying, is building my life and my story and doing my journey and he's meet, helping me meet my goals so I can be successful in my ministry. And that kind of vocabulary comes through a lot in sermons. You know, reach your goals. God's got a purpose and a destiny for you. To a degree, I see, see, see some truth in that. But ultimately, those things are subject to the bigger story about God because history is his story. The whole of history is about God wanting to have a bride for his son, the church, his people. Initially Israel, but then the rest of us. This is God's the main character. We're all people who are in the kind of the cast. <laughs> but we're not the main persons. We're not the protagonists in the story. Up behind us, there's a load of um, straw all over here because they're getting ready for Christmas. And if any of you have been to a Christmas production in a school, you can see that the teachers, because they've got so many kids to get in the place so and no one gets left out, they have to create up all kinds of extras to the, to the Christmas story that aren't in the text. It's like, you know, camel number seven. <laughs> and some kids got one line, you know, and about, there's about 30 innkeepers. I'm sure, I'm sure there wasn't that many. But they've got to get everybody in. They've got to fit them all in the story. And there's this one kid who's age six and has been sweating for a month figuring out how they're going to f- remember their line, like, you can't stay here, we're full, you know. And, and it's not in the text, but they've got to fit them all in. And everybody has to kind of get together and play their part. But ultimately, you know that even when it's your six-year-old up there who's camel number 12, and all they do is kind of go on the end of the line and they're traipsing up to Jerusalem as some part of the story... It feels important to them because it's their part. But it isn't their story. They're just a part in the bigger story. But in their little world, this is my thing. This is my moment. This is where I get to show mum and dad why I should get a, a, you know, some sort of grant to go to drama school or something. Look how well I played my part. And all you can see is your bit and your line. You don't care what Mary and Joseph, all you know is you just want to say your bit. You know, and all of the animals, all of the things, it's just that it's all part of the picture, but they're not the main characters. And interestingly and ironically in the story, the main part is Jesus, and he's the one that says the least, because he's a baby. doesn't get any lines. If the baby started talking in the Jesus Christmas story, we'd all be a bit freaked out. <laughs> this baby starts nattering away to you, who gave the baby a line? Normally it's just some sort of doll they've, they've, they've got in the props department. But Jesus is the main person in the story. And all the other parts, they're just parts. They're not the main part of the story. So in our own life and in Elijah's life, as, as prominent as Elijah was, Elijah isn't the main character in the story. He's just a part in God's story. When he hands over to Elisha, Elisha too will be a part in God's story. And for a while, Elisha will feel that maybe it's about me and my ministry. But him and his ministry was ultimately about God and his story. He was just playing a part. You're playing a part. I'm playing a part. And for a while it feels big to us. The little lines that we get to deliver as part of that play. We get wound up and caught up and and sometimes anxious about what we're going to do and how we're going to play our role. But we just need to relax and decompress and remind ourselves that ultimately it's God and his story. 
The final point I would offer to us from this is that in order to move into what God has for us, whatever part of the story we are, whatever part of the narrative uh, we take, whatever uh, a character we are in God's story, he's looking for his people to be fully surrendered to him. So Elisha models this as part of this transition, this handover, this pivot from Elijah to Elisha, is that he first of all, he creates this nice steak braai for his, for his comrades, his his sort of like a part of them are his family, part of them were the servants, probably hired. But he gives them this nice steak barbecue dinner. Gets rid of the cows, and he also burns the yoke that we used to harness the cows in order to drive the fields. So he gets rid of all of that stuff that was part of his previous life. And we get this in Jesus' story when it said, anyone who comes to follow me, must give up everything, you know, fathers, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, whatever, and come and follow me. I want complete surrender for those who are going to take on a position of being my followers. And Elisha models that in his life. He says, I'm going to give this all up. No coming back now. It's all gone. I burned my bridges and I'm moving on. But then the second part of that full surrender is when he takes on Elisha's mantle. This was significant in several ways. First of all, it was an uncomfortable thing to do because what he was wearing before would have been optimised for him working in the fields. He probably would have worn just enough so it's a bit loose-fitting, protected him from the sun and the elements, but in order for him to do his job, he couldn't be kind of saddled with this heavy uh, sort of clothing. But Elijah's mantle, which he's going to receive like we see later on with John the Baptist, was one made out of animal hair. The, prof- the prophetic mantle was this animal skin covering, which after Elijah has just been wearing it for however many decades, smelly, sweaty, dirty, out in the desert, doing what Elijah did as this kind of wild prophet man, this was the thing that he was now going to wear. And that was interesting because Elisha was therefore now going to be identified with a man who had been on the run from the government. When they were out looking for the CCTV cameras trying to decide where he was, they go, oh, there's his jacket, that's him. He was identifying himself with the story of Elijah. He was carrying that mantle. He said, your battles are now going to be my battles. Your fights will be my fights. Your ministry will now be my ministry. I'm going to carry the most identifying marker of you as a prophet. That mantle of animal skin that you wore, as itchy and dirty and stinky as it was, I'm going to take that on. That is now what I'm going to wear. And so he exchanges identity through his surrender. He takes on that prophetic mantle. He takes on that prophetic identity. And in order to move into the blessing of God... We have to be prepared to lay down who we once were in order to take up who God wants us to be. As uncomfortable as that can be, as difficult as that can be, there is a picture here of what it takes to live as a follower and live as a leader or live as anyone in ministry that you have to be prepared to lay down what what once was in order to take up what can be final part of this, this image of laying down, that I also, as I read this, it reminded me of blind Bartimaeus when he went to Jesus. 
So in the story of blind Bartimaeus, you can read about this in um, Mark chapter 10. We're not going to turn to it now. But Bartimaeus is calling out to Jesus, calling out to Jesus, calling out to Jesus. People try and shush him. Be quiet. Don't shout. He won't be silenced. Jesus calls him and it says he laid down his cloak, his coat in some translations. Why was that significant? Was he simply trying to be uh, um, lighter as he ran to Jesus? Possibly. But the other interesting thing for Bartimaeus was the system in which he lived in that day, there were lots of people who tried to make a living from begging, from what was this kind of second temple period benefit system. So in order for people who didn't have a job in those days, they would have to beg in order to get money or just kind of piecemeal get work. So in order to make sure there was some sort of filter or grid to separate those who were just trying to make a living that way and those who were genuinely in need, the temple system and the priests there would issue a particular uh, a covering, a coat, for those who were going to be accepted as, as genuine beggars. Some commentators say it was marked in a particular red paint. So that was signifying to those who were passing by, you can trust that this person is genuinely in need because the temple have verified their health problem or their status as somebody who is deservedly you know, given money as a beggar. So what Bartimaeus was doing as he was throwing off his cloak, he was, that was his first statement of faith to Jesus, saying, I'm not going to go back to begging anymore, and he's blind. If he gets rid of that coat, he can't even find it again if he doesn't get healed. <laughs> Where did I put my coat? Well, I don't know. He can't even look for it. So it's this place of full surrender. He threw off the very thing that would have enabled him to make a living. As horrible as that living was, as, as basic as that living was, that's all he had. He had that covering from the temple, from the priest, to say, you're a real deal beggar because you're real deal blind. You can give money to this person. And he threw it off. If Jesus didn't heal him, if Jesus didn't do the thing, he was sunk. So you can imagine some other person who's a beggar, kind of waiting if this was a Hollywood moment whose who's, who's, uh, physical challenges weren't that they were blind. They thought, oh, good, a kind of cloak. <laughs> I'll take that and I'll use that. And it disappeared down an alleyway somewhere to be sold on the cloak black market. <laughs> Anybody want a legit coat? You can earn a few, a few denarii with this. Shekels, be more specific, historically accurate. So... There's this sense of separating yourself off from who you once were. Now, for a beggar, that's not a big sacrifice in some ways. It's a scary thing, but you're not giving up millions of pounds. For Elisha, it was scary because he was separating himself from his family. Normally, you'd leave the home when you got married and you set up your own home. You'd go and build a home, get a bride, move in together and set up your own little field and agricultural society and get on with things. 
but you would separate, he separated, he said there's going to be no employment, there's going to be no marriage, there's going to be none of that. And blind Bartimaeus, he was saying, I'm getting rid of this income, this, this little bit of income, and I'm throwing myself completely at Jesus and Elisha and Elijah. This is it. It's all, all or nothing. And I think what we can take from this is being responsible to the text. I don't, sometimes preachers, they, they over-apply a specific incident in Scripture to everybody as if, you know, some of the incidental details weren't important, and sometimes they are. But I think there is a general and generally applicable principle here that in order to move into what God has for us, there has to be some sense of separation, some surrender, some, some preparedness in us to do away with the season before. Rather than try and walk a line between our old way of living and what God previously had for us and moving into the new, and we, we struggle with the tension. But in order to receive that full blessing, Elisha had to get rid of what was before for what was ahead. And so what we're going to do now is I'm just going to play uh, one song. We're going to close with this playing in the background. I'm going to invite everyone to participate in, in this, this, this sort of next part of the, of the meeting. But you only really participate as much as you want to inside. But I'm just going to play this song. It's um, a song about the Holy Spirit. Um, I think it's by Bethel Church again. And I would encourage us all to stand, if, if I would be so bold as for you to stand. And I just, I want to ask you a question, really. And that question is, what is it you want to receive from God in this next season? Where is it you really want to go? You might have been praying about it for a few years and you know what that is exactly. Now, sometimes it's just a question of timing. You're fully surrendered, but the timing's just not now. Elisha could have burnt his cows and his yokes three years previous to that, but it would have been premature. <laughs> he would have been hungry for a couple of years. He had to wait for Elijah to turn up at his, at his, at his, at his farm. Say, so now's the moment, now's the time. And sometimes it's a question of timing, not of intentionality or sacrifice. But there are times when God would challenge you, you as he's challenged me, or many times in my life, do you really want to move on, or do you want to live with one foot in the past? Do you really want all I've got ahead, or do you really still want to live with a little bit of what was sp supposed to be left behind? And I can't answer for you exactly what those things are. I can generalize and and give you some, some hypothetical statements of whether it's a, a past relationship you struggle to let go of, or some hurts, or some hang-ups you've had over stuff, some bitterness, some frustration, or maybe it's just the fact that you maybe God's calling you into a, a, a step of faith for, for ministry, but you're you know, feeling intimidated about leaving your job. Now, those are big decisions, and don't do those on a whim at the end of my sermons. But just think about it and pray about what is it that God is saying to me? It's timely that we're coming to an end of a year, looking at a January. But what is it that God would say, in order for you to take the next thing up, you've got to really let the last thing go? And there can be emotional ties, as well as they can be practical ones. But just invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you and say what that thing is. And I would encourage you to surrender whatever that last season is to God and to decide what you need to do in light of that. 
And the other part of this time of receiving as well is if you don't know what that is or you feel you've let it go, but just to reaffirm to yourself before God that you are ready for what God has next. And maybe God will just impart something today. If nothing else, I pray that God would impart some more gifts of the Holy Spirit to you. Maybe God would just sharpen your prophetic voice. Maybe he will sharpen gifts of the Holy Spirit that you've maybe not dabbled in, is an unfair way of describing it, but you've used but not fully maximised in your life. Maybe God just wants to impart. But I'm just going to believe everybody to receive something today. Something, something that God would deposit from heaven to your life and that we receive everything that he has for us. So we'll just let this song play out and then I'll pray at closing at the end, but just receive from the Lord. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarrington.com.